Linoleum Knife. A podcast of the cinema. I'm Alonzo Duraldi. You're Dave White. We're both film critics for The Wrap. Yes. Uh, we're married to each other. That's I, correct. I co-host some other podcasts. You do. And this is our program. 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 <laughs> Turn off your set for 15 minutes and let the tubes cool. Um, you know, I had half a mind to... I'll say. Dump the theme music this week and just sing Everlasting Love. <laughs> You're obsessed. I, it's a... I, I, I mean, I wouldn't... Here's the thing. Open up your eyes, then you'll realize Here I stand with my everlasting love What is there to be denied about you'll that? always be my bride. <laughs> yes. <laughs> your corpse bride. <laughs> um, okay, so this is... First of all... Sorry. First of all, we need to thank the person... Who yes. sent you the DVD of the film C-R-A-Z-Y? Yes. Is that the title? Is the title crazy or is the title C-R-A-Z-Y? It is spelled C-R-A-Z-Y. I'm, I'm assuming that the it is pronounced crazy. You have a vague memory of having a conversation with someone about that film. And then we think whoever it was sent it to you. Yes. But I, there was no name, no return address, no nothing. And now you have forgotten... To whom you spoke yes, it, it, about this movie. Well, here's what happened. So, uh, recently, um, the director, Jean-Marc Vallée, died on Christmas Day, actually. And, you know, he obviously went on to be known for films like Wild and um, Dallas Buyers Club. Right. Uh, Demolition is a perfect personal favorite of mine, although it was not a big hit. Um, and, I, and I think he, he directed uh, at least the first season of... Big Little Liars and Sharp Objects. Anyway, his sort of launchpad movie was this Canadian feature, uh, and it is, it is queer and set at Christmas, and somehow I've never seen it. Okay. Called Crazy, or yes. C-R-A-Z-Y. All right. And, is it um, an acronym for something? I don't know. I haven't watched the movie yet. I'll, I will report back. But anyway, it was not streaming anywhere, and it was like out of print on physical media, and I was like, I'd love to see this movie. I can't see this movie. Um, and someone on Twitter was like, I have an extra copy. I'll send it to you. And I was like, oh, well, that's nice. And then I didn't think about it again. And then one showed up in the mail. But in a in a priority mailbox with no name and no return right. address. So I don't know who to thank for this. But whoever it is that sent me a copy of Crazy, thank you for sending me a copy of Crazy. I'm looking right. forward to watching it. What year is that movie from? Uh, it is from, uh, hang on, I have Monsieur Valet's... Uh, uh, 2005. 2005. Yeah. So not all that old. And again, this is just a reminder to folks. This is why I'm always hitting the hitting the the triangle for uh, for physical media because things just disappear before you know it, and you can't find them anywhere. Um, you know, there's this great organization that just started up called Missing Movies, where they're going to be trying to work through whatever legal hurdles are keeping a lot of like you know. 80s and 90s independent cinema that was, you know, once upon a time was on DVD, but has never come out on VHS. Has never, sorry, once upon a time was on VHS. It's never come out on DVD. You can't get it streaming. Um, and yeah, stuff just kind of falls by the wayside. And it, this is a movie from, you know, not that long ago, and you can't find it, at least in the United States. I think in Canada, it is, it is 
available yeah. on demand or whatever. So um, yeah, if you if you can own a physical copy of a movie you love, you should because you just never know when it's going to up and poof. it'll poof. it'll poof disappear like it was never there. Right. All right, get to make the everlasting love. This is a um, an extra longish episode, not wildly not, long, no. but. Longer than normal yeah. uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, first, it's late. <laughs> first, it's late. Secondly, it is uh, uh, half new material, like stuff that opened this week, mm-hmm. and uh, half th- old older films that we have not yet caught up to. Yes. Or at least that I have not yet caught up to. Right. Um, Tied to this week's Oscar nomination, mentioned them before. Like you saw Spencer and talked about it a little bit. Yes, on one of the earlier episodes, you saw Encanto and talked about it somewhat on yeah. an earlier episode. Um, neither of us had seen Belfast. Neither of us until the other night saw yeah. Belfast yet. Um, and so we're doing all that. Also. You are working on a new book. Yes. And it's not, I think of it more as a book project. Because it, exactly. It's for hire and it's for someone else. My name won't be on it, but, you know, I'm, I'm pouring myself into it nonetheless. And it is eating up much of my schedule it's at the eating moment. eating up, like, all of your schedule. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so and this it's will due be, at the end of the month. Yes. So and this, so. This will be our last episode for a few weeks. We are, after this episode, this sort of double-stuffed mm-hmm. episode, we are uh, taking a break until the end of February. Yes. With Linoleum Knife. Yes. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you will continue to enjoy. We hope you enjoy. You'll continue to get, receive... <laughs> Ideally enjoy the podcasts that are exclusive to Patreon subscribers. Linoleum Knife presents more Linoleum Knife. LKTV. Yes. Linoleum Knife and Fork. Linoleum Knights. You can collect the podcasts that are due you. Yes. Those we will continue to do. But the one that requires the most uh, time expenditure is this one. Yes. And so... This is the, and also this is the free one. <laughs> so <laughs> get what you get. If you're paying for it, you're getting it. If you're not paying for it, you're going to take a little weight with yes. us. Um, uh, so the, uh, uh, maybe don't, maybe don't devour this in one sitting if you need to, you know, tie it. What if you devoured it and then had it again as a leftover? You could also do that. You could enjoy it twice. Sure. We say so many golden <laughs> things in every episode. You might not catch them what all if you, on the first go. Well, yeah, what if you just thought, wow, those guys are so <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> and when you're done, you're like, I need to go hear it again. Really savor. To, yeah, to like, insights. To, to, to like, what, what did I, what truth did I miss? <laughs> the first listen. You never know if a second go around is going to make your life better. True. Uh, all right, so we watched Belfast. Yes. And hang on. That's not 
the first movie on the list. What is the first movie on the list? We're going alphabetically. Just oh. to keep this oh. all together okay. in a way that, you know, sure. t- takes us down the line. Okay. We have not, unfortunately, seen uh, Mr. Branagh's new film, or I guess maybe his old new film, whatever, Death on the Nile, which is finally in theaters because it's only in theaters. Yeah, well, everybody who's lis- who listens to this show regularly knows that currently we are still not yet back at... Press screenings, though we were before Omicron started, and um, and and if we were living in Dallas, we could spend Super Bowl Sunday going to the movies and feeling fairly uh, uh, reliable. Depends on the movie. Well, I said that's true. Listen, the in the nineties, mm-hmm. I went to see Heat on Super Bowl Sunday, right? And I had the whole theater to myself. Sure. A year before or after, I can't even remember about release dates now, but my, at the time, boyfriend and I uh-huh. went to see the Joy Luck Club oh. on Super Bowl Sunday, and that was a packed house. Well, sure. Okay, fair enough. So, But um, in LA, you can't rely on anything to not cannot. be packed on Super Bowl Sunday. If you want to go to the movies on Oscar night, you might have a decent shot. Oh, yeah. But uh, not on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, there was that time on I, there was that time on an Academy Awards Sunday when I had tickets to an opera mm. in the afternoon. Right. And it started at two and it got out around five ish. Mm-hmm. And that's of course the Oscars have already like kicked into gear sure. at five PM. It took me approximately 15 minutes to drive home <laughs> from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion downtown wow. where the Oscars used to be staged to day. our apartment uh, didn't when we like it was it was it was a ghost town didn't we see follies on like Oscar afternoon that's my I memory. don't remember anyway we're so cultural <laughs> who can who, who can, can keep track I can't keep track of everything um I would like to begin this with a uh, a re-release. We'll get to Everlasting Love in a minute. <laughs> it's pertinent to Belfast. Yes. And, but not really. <laughs> it just became... It's there. Yeah. Uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. Yes. Who we all know and love as the filmmaker behind Shoplifters... Most recently, 2019's The Truth. Oh, right. Yes. His first yes, uh, yes, yes. English language. Yeah. Or sorry, French and English language. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but like, for me, going all the way back to 1995's uh, Mabarossi, mm-hmm. Afterlife, right. Nobody Knows, Like Father, Like Son, After the Storm, like so many great yes. movies that he's made. But he made one in 2009 called Air Doll that never got a U.S. release. Until now. Until now, yeah. Currently, it has been uh, re-released uh, by Deconalogue. Deconalogue. Yeah. Into art house uh, theaters. Um, I reviewed it for The Wrap. Yes. I, I wrote a review of it for The Wrap just now. I have not seen it yet. But... A couple weeks ago. Um, or a, a week ago mm. when, it, when it came to theaters in los angeles it's at the lumiere i don't know check your local listings yes um 
But it stars uh, Bay Duna from Sense Eight. Yes. And, and Cloud Atlas. And Cloud Atlas, and uh, I think she's in Jupiter Ascending as well. Probably. Um, uh, she's a Wachowski staple now. I was going to say, given how many Sensei cast members pop up in, yeah. in, in uh, Matrix Resurrections, I would not be surprised if she was in the fold. Airdoll is a strange film. Mm. Um, and it is very much in keeping with the Corieta, you know, way of being in that it is a quiet sort of contemplative quite melancholy metaphorical study of humanity right in this case through the lens of a not human object Mm -hmm. um her name is nozomi and she is an inflatable sex toy she is an, an, an air doll. Um, and she is owned by a man named Hideo. And he, for him, she is a substitute for actual human interaction. We later learn that his former girlfriend was named uh, Nosomi. Um, she left him. He finds human contact with just about anybody, in his words, annoying. Uh, and he treats her like, uh, he treats the doll like a girlfriend. Like, he has sex with it, obviously, which is the whole function of those, you know, inflatable, or now not even inflatable, like, they make these, like, yeah. uh, silicone. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they're made of now, but, like, you can get a really expensive yeah. thing like that. Um, As seen in Lars and the Real Girl. Any gender you like, mm-hmm. uh, you can have one, I guess... Made to specification, I think. I believe so. Yes. Yeah, um, I've never seen one like in in I've person. Seen, I've seen photos. I've never seen. Oh well, yeah, photos, yeah. sure. But like in any case, um, in 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 Nosomi's words, she's a, a cheap one mm. because she comes in a box. Uh, the box reads "Lovely Candy Girl." And uh, and he has given her this name. And one day when he leaves for work, after like sitting her at the dining room table and talking to her over breakfast and stuff like that, uh, she comes to life. Is Beiduna playing her the entire time? Yes. Or? Oh, okay. Yes. Um, the initial way that you see her is it is a literal blow-up doll. Right. And then... She starts to move mm-hmm. through special effects gotcha. sort of, you know, stuff. And then she becomes Beiduna. Beiduna. Yeah. Um, and she leaves the house, walks around and stares at things and studies people and because she doesn't know anything about the world outside that apartment. She goes to a video store. And the, because she, you know. That's how you know this is a movie that was made a few years ago. <laughs> yes. She goes to a video store and the owner and the young man who worked there are so, like, taken with her that they immediately give her a job. And she learns about life at the video store through watching old movies. Films, you know, in the store. Yeah. And being talked about 
and being talked to about films by the employee, the male employee. She develops a relationship with the male employee. And that leads to some complicating ideas because he doesn't fully understand that when she leaves him and goes back to her home, she is inanimate. Mm. And she thinks that he too is full of air. Mm. I won't give away what happens. But what this film does is sort of, you know, in a very obvious, sometimes clunky, uh, heavily metaphorical way, you know, explores how human beings can and cannot relate to each other. Um, And specifically, how certain men behave with women, how they treat women. Are you simply an object to own? Are you a blank slate that you can be, you know, molded into uh, uh, the person that I'm teaching you to be? No man that she encounters in this film is truly there for her. Right. Um, Their idea of who she is or what she could be to him. Right. So... Throughout the film, though, we're getting all of this from her perspective. Mm. She's narrating her experience throughout the film. And though she still doesn't understand the biology of the human body, uh, she is becoming increasingly aware of how men are treating her. Mm. Uh, And when they are treating her worse rather than better, she repeats a line of dialogue that comes up from time to time. I am an air doll. I am a substitute for intimacy. And that is something she says a few times. And each time she says it, you realize that it is in response to the way a man is using her. Specifically close to the end of the film where we realize that Hideo has replaced her with a new upgraded version of a doll that he has also named Nosomi. Hmm. Um, again, I won't spoil the ending. If you love Corrieta, you will be interested in this film. Uh, I would call it a minor film from him, simply because the themes sometimes feel a little clunky. But even a clunky Corrieta movie is better than (laughs) (laughs) other people's shiny moments. Yeah, honestly. Um, So this is worth looking at... um, and I I couldn't help but wonder what it would be like if this had been a film uh, and it's based on a, a, a manga. Mm-hmm. Um, if this had been adapted, written by, directed by a, a woman. woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, no, no slighting Corrieta here. Like, his perspective is one that is... Uh, you know, thoughtful and sensitive and, and inclusive. Uh, there's always that block, sure. you know, there's always that little bit of a block. Um, and you always wonder, well, who, what could this have been if someone else sure. had taken this story and run with it in a, maybe a slightly different direction. That's fair. Yeah. 
but in general, pretty good. Okay. For certainly for you know, completists. For for coriated completists. <laughs> and if you are a completist, there's you know. I've still I've never seen uh, our little sister. I've never seen uh, Hannah. But you know, he's pretty prolific. He's got he's well you know he's made a lot of movies. Yeah. Um. We also watched, finally, Belfast. Yes. Hence, Everlasting my, love. hence <laughs> my new uh, sort of obsessive uh, indulgence in the song Everlasting Love. The song doesn't really have anything to do with the movie. It is in the movie. And it is sung in the movie by Jamie Dornan, who we realized as we were watching him sing it, that this is now what the third or fourth movie where he has been called upon to sing. Yeah, he he sits at the piano in the last Fifty Shades movie and does some Beatles song, which provoked which got a lot of laughs at the press screening. Yeah. But that movie, come on, um, he sings "Sweet Mountain Time" in "Sweet Mountain Time." I gotta can a, I just... a movie that we <laughs> cop to liking by all <laughs> by all apparent metrics. "Sweet Mountain Time" is a bad movie, and yet. Well, it came out in 2020? I think so, yeah. Well, that's why. <laughs> we were so desperate for anything that seemed sweet <laughs> and transporting us away from, you know... Uh, Our apartment. The COVID, <laughs> the COVID land. Uh, well, put, put a pin in that because we have another movie we're talking but about he today. Sings, he sings the song Sweet Mountain Time with Emily Blunt uh, in that film. And when they're singing it together, you're like, this is so sweet. <laughs> Of course, he has the amazing uh, number in in uh, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. Right. Seagulls of the Sand, hear my prayer. And before we get into talking what Belfast is about, um, the moment when he sings Everlasting Love mm-hmm. in the film is when he it feels like he has come alive. Mm. Um, because he's such a a distressed figure. His character is yeah. in the film that you don't really get a good sense of what makes this guy care about. Like he's so fixed on his responsibilities. Right. That you don't know how he feels about anything really. Um, and I, you know, I blame the script and the direction for well, that. Go on. But when he sings the song mm-hmm. near the end of the film, he becomes loose and he starts to, uh, you get the feeling that he's singing this song because this is the thing he's trying to say to his family. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and the thing about it is that it is like so much of this movie. And he moves around like Tom Jones. He so. <laughs> As a discreet moment in the movie, yeah. it's a great scene. Mm-hmm. In the collection of scenes in this and tones of this film, it is weird and randomly out of, from out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, Belfast is from Kenneth Branagh. Yes, and it is a semi autobiographical or fully autobiographical, uh, at least semi. I don't. Okay. I haven't really dug into it. About but. a little nine-year-old boy in 1969 in Belfast. Yes. Kenneth Branagh was nine years old in 1969 in Belfast. And 
he, the, the child in the film, uh, experiences, you know, family tension, uh, which is the result of the tension outside the home. Yes, the troubles. The, uh, the conflict between Protestants and Catholics. In Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland. Do not ask me to explain that to you. Because to this day, I still don't understand it. I've heard enough about it to know that it existed. Yeah, I know it happened. And that there was violence. But I don't understand. And maybe if you're an Irish listener and you know more about this than we do, uh, you can articulate it more clearly than the film does. I was going to say, suffice it to say, you will not learn what is behind that watching this film which is not in itself a a castigation you know you don't learn about what world war ii is about when you watch hope and glory right but you do get uh, you know this sort but of world war ii encompassed the world true <laughs> and it, you it, you'd be you could take it as red i suppose yeah <laughs> you know world war ii is um so i mean given that he is trying to do this like from the perspective of a nine-year-old, I'd say the movie understands the troubles the way a nine-year-old would. I guess that is correct. Which is, people are shooting at each other and things are blowing up and my street is barricaded and I don't understand what this is about. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I'm not going to... There are other reasons to call out this movie that are not that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, you're not going to learn the, 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 the basic breakdown of what caused the troubles from this film. You got a young actor named Jude Hill yes. as the nine-year-old uh, boy named Buddy. Uh, his mother's played by Katrina Balf. I don't really know her. Uh, Jamie Dornan plays the father. Kieran Hines is the grandfather. Katrina Balf is the star of that show, Outlander. All right. A show I do not watch. I do not either, but All people right. love it. Jamie Dornan's the father. Uh, Kieran Hines is the grandfather. Judy Dench is the grandmother. Yes. Um... Because of the violence taking place outside of their home, they are caught in the middle of their Catholic neighbors and their Protestant neighbors. They themselves are a Protestant family yes. who do not feel like... Uh, do not feel threatened by the Catholics. They do not feel threatened by the Catholics, and they do not want to drive the Catholics out yeah. of the neighborhood. That makes the other Protestants in the neighborhood angry, <laughs> and so they become somewhat targeted Themselves. as a family. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the father's job in England is moving along very nicely, and they want to bring him over, and they wanted to move the family to England and live there, but this prompts... Stress in the family uh, because Belfast is their home. Yes. They don't want to leave the grandparents. They don't want to leave their friends. They don't want to leave a, a tiny community on their block that everyone knows, where where everyone knows them. Right. And people look out for each other. Yeah. The mother it, says no one will understand the way they speak. Right. The um, So that's what it's about. Yeah. Uh, and... And what they wind up deciding to do at the end of the film. It is tonally all over the place. In a film like Hope and Glory, mm -hmm. even in a film like Jojo Rabbit, <laughs> where you have children involved in 
adult situations that are too big for them to comprehend. Sure. The children in those stories invent reasons Mm. for what's going on. And they live in a kind of uh, sort of imaginary place where they understand it the way they understand it. Right. That's how everyone else around them uh, obviously understands it as well from their perspective. Sure. Here, it's a kid who just seems befuddled by what's going on around him and sort of stressed out, pushed by the tides of whoever he happens to be, you know, with. Talking to. Yeah. Um, And so if we are meant to understand this film the way the poster image portrays the film, this kid is sort of flying in a fantasy way above the heads of the other characters in the film. He's Mm -hmm. got his little sword and his little trash can lid, and he lives in his own, you know, childlike universe. That's not what's going on here. Yeah, you know. It is. That that idea of, oh, I've invented a magical reason for these things to be taking place. Right. And 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 that kind of bubble doesn't even need to be sort of like magical realist, but it, it is it is a, a perspective, you know, and, and I, I found myself sort of thinking about other films from a you know, autobiographical or semi autobiographical films from a child's perspective. So, you know, Hope and Glory, Crooklyn, uh, uh you know, Fanny and Alexander, um, you know, Amarcord. Yeah. And 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 yeah, this movie wants to be like kids POV, but also sort of omniscient narrator as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've seen a lot of people compare it to Roma, which obviously it's a different, you know, central character perspective, but it is a, a, a sort of black and white, you know, memory of childhood where it's like parts, you know, going to the movies and, and, and the things that kids are into, but then also part like violence at the periphery that we don't yeah. quite understand. And obviously, you know, Quaron is telling that story of his childhood, but not through himself. Yes. Uh, and Belfast isn't isn't nailing it on any of those fronts. You know, so like I said, there are individual moments that stand out that are lovely, that are moving, that are funny, that are whatever, but it doesn't cohere. I. It's very polite. Yeah. <clears throat> and quite often in the cinema of Kenneth Branagh, <laughs> unless it's... Shakespeare based, there is a there is that politeness and there is that reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an aesthetic that he winds up with quite often that is a little bland. Yeah, safe. And I don't know that just having, you know people talk about how much they love Ireland can overcome that. Right. Cause I think that's what he's banking on here. You know, this happened to me. I'm not going to embellish it too much. This is inherently interesting to you. It's not somehow yeah. the storytelling here is muted in a way that, uh, never really 
landed with me in an emotional way and i and I, I can feel that's what he's going for yeah that's that's the thing like you know the everlasting love song you can tell what what that scene is designed to make you feel yeah. the ending of the film and judy dench's last line of the film you can totally tell what that is designed to make you feel yeah and i'm sitting there going huh i guess this is the part where i'm supposed to you know feel this thing exactly right and uh, yeah so it's uh yeah, I'm I'm not super into it, but as you pointed out, this movie may well win the Academy Award. This oh, year. it could very well. It could win Best Picture. It's yeah. nominated for Best Picture, and it could win Best Picture because because it pushes buttons. Because it's that is, I mean, it's a it's a it's a machine designed to push buttons. Yeah. Um. You know, I I want to like it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look I, on paper, it all sounds great. I love these performers. The kid is very, you know, like open to the camera and uh-huh. gives, a, gives a lovely performance. Um, you know, the period details are, 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 are nice. You know, it's, it's kind of cool where like, if it's a black and white movie, but when they go see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, it's in color. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that uh, just the, the, this idea of a, a child being close to both his parents and his grandparents and what those memories are like, it, it's all there. It could all be there and this could all work. But Branna, I think, like you said, he's just too sort of reticent to make it too dark or too uncomfortable. And so it's just kind of bland. In my head, there's a more interesting film that is about the marital stress mm. between Katrina Balfe and Jamie Dornan. Yeah. Um, not only because of the, the story itself... But because when you cast two people that are that hot. <laughs> yes. And you want then, to know everything about them. And, uh, yeah, you want to know everything about them. <laughs> this is a terrible historical moment. How is it going to affect these very hot people? <laughs> I think, you know, look, if, if nothing else, this, is, this should be a movie about people who live who have like a neighborhood yeah, and then that neighborhood suddenly becomes a war zone. Yeah. And I did, I didn't quite feel the transition and the shock that that would be. Yeah. You know, if our neighborhood suddenly had like barricades at either end of our block, it would be a frightening world. Yeah. Yeah. You get a sense of that close to the end in the, 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 the looting, the, the local market yeah. looting scene. Um, but but by then it's sort of like the movie has been on for ninety minutes and yeah eh, yeah and that's also one it's of the disappointing it's also one of the few moments in the film where like it's a thing that happens to every kid where you do something that seems like you're just that's what you do and then in the aftermath you realize oh no oh no I I've ruined made a terrible I've, mistake I ruined everything right yeah yeah uh you know. For your consideration. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't say watch it or don't watch it. I just wish that I had been watching something else. Yeah. And then there's Blacklight. Okay, I was not wishing that I could watch Blacklight. <laughs> that is correct. Do I want to watch Blacklight or Belfast? I'll watch Belfast again. Oh, ten times. Before watching Blacklight. Ideally for the first time, <laughs> but we already had to do that. <laughs> so, and here's the thing. I do not tar all Liam Neeson with the gun movies with the same brush. And believe me. Nor should you. I've seen them all. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, when when January, March, January, February, March rolls around, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to get Medea and you're going to get an armed and angry Liam Neeson. Yes. <laughs> Tis the season. Um, so this time he plays a sort of off the books enforcer for the FBI. He is old friends and owes a big favor to the current head of the FBI, played by Aiden Quinn. And his job is to wrangle other agents who are in danger of yes. losing the threat. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, either they've gone undercover and they've been found out, or they've gone so deeply undercover that they, that they can't get that out. They can't get out. Yeah. Um, and so he gets involved with, uh, there's an, an agent who has gone undercover within the campaign of an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez type populist politician. She is assassinated in the opening scene of the film. And when this guy tries to go to the press, uh, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And in the process of, of, of trying to, to get this guy to come in and finding out what he knows and what he's trying to tell the media, Neeson comes to understand that, you know, perhaps his old buddy Aiden Quinn is up to some shenanigans. Meanwhile, of course, Quinn has a daughter and granddaughter who then disappear. And, you know, you don't mess with Aiden, with uh, Liam Neeson's family, as we have learned over the course of these movies. So, Meanwhile, you know. there's a reporter played by uh, Emmy Raver Lampman, who yes. is on Umbrella Academy. Right. And she's done a lot of Broadway. Um, Broadway. Broadway. She's, and she's, she's the one sort of the, working with Neeson to yeah. uncover the truth. Right. The yeah. FBI guy had been wanting to talk to her, and now she's digging into it all. <sighs> First of all, this is one of the dumbest conspiracies in a movie since, like, Fateful Findings. <laughs> like, it has... It, this is a conspiracy with one layer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's it's, it's just right there. Uh, this is also the kind of movie where Neeson and the head of the FBI can get into a gunfight in the streets of Washington, D.C. In broad daylight. In broad daylight, and no one notices. No, no, one's, no, one's, in, no, one's, no <laughs> one's near. No one's going to get in their way. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, this movie is, you know, again, I've seen them all. This is one of, this is down in the category with like Taken 3 of the worst of these. Because, you know... They, they can still be entertaining, but like, you know, uh, Honest Thief at least gave us a, a good supporting performance from, from Jay Courtney. Uh, that Ice Trucker movie was ridiculous, but <laughs> this, is, this isn't even as fun bad as the Ice Trucker movie. It's just dumb. Uh, yeah, it's borderline inept. Um, as filmmaking, it is laughable. Mm. There are so many moments that feel... Like, they knew they didn't have a script that was, you know, worth anything. Um, so let's have him drive fast a lot. So let's have him drive fast a lot. Let's have him, every time he speaks, when he's uncovering some piece of information, let's have him speak it and then the the dialogue echo, 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 echoes oh. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the soundtrack. And this happens... A few times. The jump cutty thing yeah. when he's looking at stuff, which is supposed to tie into the fact that this character has like some kind of OCD where he has to yeah. do things in threes or whatever. Yeah, they play real fast and loose with uh what we what we are told is obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. And I really don't like it. No. When films it's very gimmicky approach, you know, mental health as a narrative like uh 
trick. Exactly. Yes. Well put. Um, the, uh, but yeah, he is, everything he says is echoed. Um, the lights are weird. You don't even see his collection of guns until 80 minutes into the film. <laughs> the journalist's bosses keep thinking that there's not a story there. And I'm like, um, you just saw an FBI agent get like wrestled to the ground by 10 cops or something. Right. And, and, and you just don't think there's a story. The reporters, the reporter, uh, <laughs> who's trying to get the story done. Her editor is so like negging her at every point saying like, you don't have any facts. You don't have a story. There's nothing going on. Why bother? Like, well, you're an editor. So let her go try to do her job and find out the stuff it's weird. Yeah. People behave in ways in this film that, listen, I don't run a daily newspaper and I don't work for the FBI, but I do, <laughs> but I have met human beings. <laughs> and no one in this film is allowed to behave like one. Oh, also, like the two guys who, spoiler, we think are, are sort of random, you know, bad dudes and it turns out they are Aiden Quinn's bad dudes. Right. Go to his office. Yeah. <laughs> like this again. They this just is, wait outside the door a, this, in the waiting room yeah. just smiling. Like, Looking at we, magazines. Here we are. <laughs> this is a conspiracy with one layer. It's ridiculous. And this is only in theaters. You okay. do not want to risk getting COVID. No, this is not worth the COVID. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, Liam Neeson is now officially coasting on these kinds of films. And and he has been for a while. Yeah. And every once in a while, there's a fun one. But the returns are greatly diminishing yes. over time. And I just wish he would shift gears. Well, if it were like a one for me, one for them situation, it'd be one thing. Right. We get like four or five of these for every, uh, you know... Was, it, was that movie called Everlasting Love? What was the the one the one that he had a few years ago with uh, Leslie Manville? I where, forget the name of it. Anyway, but yeah, so it, it's not that he's not a, a brilliantly talented actor. He's just this is what he's getting offered, and this is what's getting made. I need him to star in horny senior rom coms with Diane Keaton. That works. He's like seventy. Yeah. It's time to be the man you are. <laughs> Nancy Myers. I would believe that. Yeah. Call Nancy Liam Myers. Nielsen. Please, Nancy Myers. Bring him into a kitchen, <laughs> a beautifully appointed kitchen. Ordinary Love. Ordinary Love is the movie he made. With Diane Keaton. There you go. With Diane Weist. Oh, play a With chef. Diane Lane. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Any Diane. Any Diane. <laughs> Diana Ross? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Yeah. She's an Oscar nominee. Yeah. She can do it. I, um... Boy, do I just really hate this film. <sighs> yeah. It sucks. Mm. I was surprised to learn uh, how much I really, 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 really dug Encanto. Oh, yay. I'm glad. Um, I was hesitant. You've talked about this film already a little yes. bit on an earlier episode. I was and hesitant. I, and I told you, you that you should see it. Uh, because Disney animated features have become very samey for me. Hmm. 
Um, and I'm perhaps being unfair because... I mean, last year we got Luca, Luca. and Ryan the Last Dragon. Yeah, I, I know, and that's the thing. Like, you can then you can then point right back at me and say, "But you like Luca, and you like Ryan the Last Dragon," um, and you're right. But every time feels like a gamble. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, every time does indeed feel like a gamble. I don't trust Disney to you know, give me anything I haven't seen before. Right. And I guess I should lighten up on that perspective because of Luca and Raya and now this. Until Um, Cars 4 comes out. We have... Thank you. (laughs) Lots to answer for those Cars movie. Cars movies. And what was the Airplanes movies? Yeah. Planes? Planes. Yeah. Um, The story beats... You know, start to feel like, oh, you know, very familiar. I, I even like the Pixar movies that are generally acknowledged that people love. I kind of feel like they, you know, uh, like Ratatouille and Up. I feel like do you know they do that same thing where like the two protagonists have to fight at the beginning of the last act so that they can then come back together later. So no, I agree that a lot of that stuff can feel really formulaic, but I think lately they're on a roll. Explain the story. So this is a film set in Colombia, and uh, our our heroine is Mirabel, and she is part of this extraordinary family. And uh, you know, the Madrigal family. The Madrigal family. Her 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 grandmother had uh, escaped uh, from from soldiers, and her husband died. But uh, she and and uh, her babies were able to uh, get this amazing magical house. And her children and grandchildren have each been imbued with gifts. They all they have all have extraordinary abilities, except for Mirabel. She uh, was sort of passed over, and and that's been kind of a constant source of consternation within the family. Um, uh, anyway, so things start falling apart. The house starts literally rebelling against the family, or at least not being magical anymore. Um, Mirabel is is blamed for this, and yep. it all ties back to um, her uncle Bruno, who we do not talk about. Right. Um, you know, uh, and his ability to tell the future in a way that nobody wants to hear. He's the Cassandra of this movie. Um, and what's cool about this film is that uh, I, I believe it was the, the the woman who was the creator of. Um, the one day at a time reboot said on Twitter, I love a Disney movie uh, where the, the villain is generational trauma. <laughs> right. There's no real there villain no, per se. In this there's movie. no bad guy in this movie. Yeah. There is only the grandmother's expectations of how everyone should behave and act and, and use their powers. And even that isn't nefarious. No. It is based in a, level of concern for like keeping everyone safe and happy exactly. and content. And so her own trauma. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so what you find in this film is not at all the template of earlier yeah. Disney animated features where someone is bad and has to be vanquished. A, a gay coded villain. <laughs> right. This is a story about having to, bring your family to an understanding of 
uh, of their own strengths and weaknesses and what is okay to let go of. Yeah, who they get to be. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, it's like the best thing I've seen from Disney in a long time. Mm. Um, because there's nothing like Luca, as lovely as it does, as lovely as it is, is a coded story. Yeah. There's no coding going on here. This is a story it's about text. <laughs> family learning to understand each other and lift each other up. Like you, you literally have and the a, songs are good. The songs are good, and the the magical house is fun. Um, the animation is is beautiful. It's it is. If I'm gonna say one thing about the the, the animation is that it is that that bucket of skittles thrown at your face <laughs> that so much animated you know features are mm. these days. Um, but this. I feel like has a reason to be super colorful yeah. because it's part of the enchantment of the house. Sure. The flowers that grow at the, you know, the snap of a finger from one of the daughters. Um, so there's, it's, 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 it's part of the story. It's not like watching trolls world two, where you just Ugh. feel, you know, assaulted by everything. Right. Yeah. What's interesting is that you've got, you know, you have this this backstory of like, oh, 50 years ago we were chased by soldiers and da da da. And it's one thing when these movies were set in a sort of mythical Brothers Grimm kind of nation. Right. This is Colombia. Right. Like it is spoken and it is, it is stated right. as Colombia. So it's like, so which regime are we talking about? Right. Like, you know, you start yeah. you start thinking about it and you're like, no, 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 just really ignore that. Like, they, this isn't obviously The film doesn't dwell on it, so grounded in any way. You. But it's just right. it's just weird that, that that's a thing that, that comes up now because these are sort of set in real life places. Right. Uh, and Maluma, who we will be discussing in just a moment, yes. is one of the voices. In this he film. is. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, you know, everybody's been sort of shocked that the very popular We Don't Talk About Bruno didn't get a Best Song nomination for the Oscars, but Dos Oruguitas did. Uh, first of all, apparently Disney didn't even submit We Don't Talk About Bruno, which right. uh, I'm sure they had their reasons. But I think Dos Oruguitas might be my favorite song in this movie anyway. So, um, you know, good on them. And uh, if Lin-Manuel Miranda wins, then he has, will that an, be, he will has that an EGOT. Be, it'll be his EGOT. It'll be his EGOT. Will he grow to be 100 feet tall <laughs> if he wins the Oscar? Like, will he have the EGOT, and will he also become a literal theater kid giant a colossus? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> will he just walk around, like, stepping on people who don't believe in themselves? <laughs> <laughs> We'll just have to wait and see. I Say love is love is love or I crush you. <laughs> Follow your dreams. <laughs> I hope he does get to be an EGOT. I hope, listen, I'm all for everybody getting to be an EGOT. Why not? Including me. <laughs> Good luck. You're only four away. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm just four little steps yeah. away from being an EGOT. Follow your dreams. Um, so, Encanto. It's truly wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I encourage you to... Uh, 
If you, like me, have grown a little weary of Disney animation, mm -hmm. this might be the one to... Please, please come back. Also, a protagonist who wears glasses. <laughs> and, I knew you would like that. And who is not cut from the usual Disney princess mold physically. Yeah, well, because she's not... She is not Belle. She is not Ariel. She is not Snow White. She is a different body type. And it's great that, you know... They are embracing... A, in other words, she's a human being. She's a human type. being. Exactly. Yeah. I, it's great that they're embracing that. I think, uh, you know, when we talk about people seeing themselves in movies and relating to characters, I think, you know, shape is as important as, you know, so many other aspects. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah. As a... As a chunk. As a chunk. <laughs> I need more. More food. <laughs> uh, next up. Yes. I want you back. Ah. Premiering this weekend on uh, Prime Video. Is it also in theaters? I don't know that it is. I think it might just be on Prime. Strictly Prime. That's my understanding. I see. Uh, this is a romantic... Uh, Hijinks <laughs> movie. I would call it a romantic comedy. It's a romantic hijinks movie um, starring Charlie Day and Jenny Slate and Scott Eastwood and Gina Rodriguez and from Letterkenny. Yes. Clark Bacco. Is yes. that her last name? Bacco? I believe so. Okay. And, uh, and Manny Jacinto from Nine Perfect Strangers. Can I just, before we even talk about this movie... Manny Jacinto is the MVP of this movie. He he gives very good smarm. <laughs> like the he's like enlightened new age guy. <laughs> he's a theater guy who is also like culturally sophisticated and needs to let you know. Mm -hmm. So he's like you know, the, the thing about charcuterie <laughs> that I learned when I was living in Italia. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The proper balance of the... <laughs> um, so, he is honestly the person I'm going to really remember the most from, mm. from this film. Um, so, the, the, the premise. The premise which led you and me uh, watching this right after watching Marry Me. Yes. We went on KCRW this past week, and one of the things we kept saying to Madeline... The host was, are the straights okay? Because <laughs> if you watch, <laughs> we're worried. I want you back and marry me. Y you will perhaps ask that question yourself. <laughs> um, but especially watching this one, uh, Charlie Day and Gina Rodriguez are a couple and she dumps him. Jenny Slate and Scott Eastwood are a couple and he dumps her. Neither Charlie Day nor Jenny Slate want to be dumped. They are still in love with the people that they are in love with, even though those people have already found other relationships, yes. hence being dumped. Also turns out, Charlie Day and Jenny Slate work in the same high-rise on different floors, and one day they meet when they're both crying in a stairwell. <laughs> they start talking, they develop a friendship, they then decide, rather than go to therapy, 
Which should have been maybe their A move. They hatch a scheme. Yes. I love a scheme. Sure. We all do. I love a scheme that would make a person in real life be branded a sociopath. (laughs) They, they, They hatch a scheme that everybody would refer to as abusive if they if they encountered oh, this. Oh, in real life. In for real sure. life. Yes. But it's the stuff farces are made of. Right. So they scheme to help each other break up the other couple. Right. Right. So he's gonna break up Scott Eastwood and Clark uh, Backhoe. Uh, because he is going to start uh working out with Scott Eastwood. Scott Eastwood is a personal trainer. Jenny Slate is gonna is gonna destroy the relationship between Manny Jacinto and Gina Rodriguez by by, ball, by trying to steal Manny Jacinto away by start by trying to steal Manny Jacinto and by just creating chaos in a middle school production of Little Shop of Horrors, <laughs> which turns out to be much more cinematically uh, payoffish than you would oh, imagine. Oh, for sure. Um, also because she, it leads to her like forming this uh, odd friendship with one of the kids who's working on the show. Yeah. Um, played by, uh, Luke David Blum. So here's why this halvesies works yes. for me. And it's not because the script is especially funny. And it's not because the ending makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. It's from the writers of Love, Simon and the director of Big Time Adolescence. Okay. Which Great. Is, which is why we get the Pete Davidson cameo. Mm, yes. Yeah, Pete Davidson is in it for 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, so is Ben McKenzie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jenny Slate and Charlie Day are immensely appealing performers they both carry with them the aura of i'm funny and you know i'm funny and you know i make you laugh and you know i you know i make you uh uh, feel great when i'm around she was on parks and rec in a really small supporting role and every time that she was on camera in every episode that she was in and i think she was in fewer than a dozen episodes Everything out of her mouth became a catchphrase. Like, everything out of her mouth became a meme on the internet. She was Money, such... please. She was such a bolt of lightning on that show mm-hmm. uh, that you know her. You see her and you go, oh, her. <laughs> Wacky person. Like, you are rooting for her every time you see her. Charlie Day has been on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia for... 35 years Since now the dawn of time. And, uh, and he is also someone who you see and he's, he's got like a comedy, everything about him. He's got a comedy face. He's got a comedy body. He's got a kind of energy that is both, uh, frantic and cuddly at the same time. So I want them to, break up these two people and I want them to win. At the same time, I want them to fall in love. Sure. Which the film 
obviously cannot give you both. But that is what you get from these two. And every once in a while, they carry, uh, they don't just carry the promise of comedy with them. Every once in a while, they say something funny in the film that they have clearly ad-libbed. And, and, and they make you laugh out loud, and then you keep going. So there'll be like 10 minutes of, okay, I'm smiling, but I'm not laughing. And then they'll say something to make you yeah. laugh. And, and and to their credit, I think Eastwood and Rodriguez managed to make their characters like not entirely despicable. Yeah, well, that's right. Because the you have to be able to see the people who got... You have to be able to see the, the other people uh, in these other couples now as not reprehensible. Yeah, because they, they, they can't be monsters or else why or would else you want just, them to get back together? Yeah, they're know? justified in breaking them up. Uh, and they they would be, you know, going back to a, a terrible person if, yeah. the, if they were bad. And over the course of the film, you kind of understand why those relationships ended and what that had to do with kind of the flaws in each of them, you know, and all four of them, or at least not flaws necessarily, but why they aren't compatible. Right. Um, yeah, it's not great, but it's, you know... For a streaming movie, you know, you could do worse. These, these, they're they're very charismatic and fun. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the fact that this is one of the better uses of Atlanta I've seen in a movie lately. Oh, because I, you know, since I grew up there, I noticed when it's shot in Atlanta, and well, yeah. often well, every third film is shot in Atlanta. That's now. the thing. Often, yeah. you know, they shoot a lot there now because of, I guess, tax breaks or whatever. But yeah. so often, it's just used as generic big city, like the way that apparently Washington D.C. is played by some city in Australia in right. blacklight. Yeah. But I liked the specificity of like they go to a movie at the Plaza Theater, which is a legendary rep house. I did a screening of Elf there when I was doing the Christmas movie tour. Um, they, uh, you see like, you know, Emery and Georgia Tech sweatshirts and right. they go to different, you know, they go to Chastain Park. There's like different specific things that are like, if you're paying attention, you know, this is Atlanta and they never try and pretend that it's anywhere else. And they in fact lean into it from time to time, which is nice. So eh, anyway, I just appreciated that as a native. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's not good. It's not bad. It's something in the middle. Yeah. And if you find... Any of these performers uh, appealing, appealing, then you know you. There are worse ways to spend your time, and they're called blacklight. <laughs> exactly. Um, That's one of two big uh, streaming Valentine's Day rom coms we're talking about today. And Steven Soderbergh has a new movie. Yes, that is not one of the Valentine's Day rom coms called Kimmy. Yes, just dropped on HBO Max with very little fanfare. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why, like, I mean, when Steven Soderbergh did the boat movie, I, that I can never remember what it was called. <laughs> Meryl Streep uh, Rides a Boat. Yes, that one. Yeah. That got a lot of, like, advanced buzz and, you know. Right, uh, well, Meryl Streep was the star. Meryl Streep is the star, and yeah. also, I think, you know, because it was. Candace Bergen. It was and... earlier in the lockdown period where it was like, hey, this is a streaming thing. It's you something can watch, to watch it. on TV. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but this one's just kind of sneaking in with, with very little to do. Um, yeah, this one stars uh, Zoe, Zoe Kravitz. Kravitz. And uh, she plays a, a young woman who works for a tech company that produces an object called the Kimmy, which is basically an Alexa. It's one of those things in your house. It's a device that you talk to and it you know dims your lights and turns off your stereo and you know whatever else. The difference between Kimmy and the real life uh, versions is that uh, the company that makes them has human beings listening 
to uh, to to what people say to their Kimmies as a way to improve the Kimmy to sort of have it recognize speech patterns or you know different commands or whatnot. Uh, the Zoe Kravitz character, uh, it, it's this is set fairly early in the lockdown, I think, just because there are cloth masks still. Um, well, it was when, whenever it was shot. Exactly. You know. I'm sure it reflects the moment. But, yeah. you know, there are people out and about, but everybody's still wearing a mask and, and whatnot. We understand that she is not just staying in her apartment, but that she is genuinely agoraphobic. Yes. Uh, like, doesn't even want to go to the dentist, even though she has, like, a, a, a possible infection going on in her gums. Right. Um, she is one of those employees who listens to these uh, human voice, you know, interactions with the Kimmy. Um, and uh, Gene Hackman ex- conversation. Exactly. And yeah. then she hears what she thinks might be a crime. And as she starts digging, she discovers that she's in over her head uh, and dealing with a corporate conspiracy. So it's a little bit of rear window, a little bit of conversation, a little bit of blowouts. Um, Blow up. Blow up. Home Alone. <laughs> Actually, yes. There's a, there's, there's a specific there's a Home Alone out. reference there in is. the casting. We won't spoil what it is. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so she has to figure out how to, how to get out of her apartment and then how to like barricade herself in her apartment uh-huh. as, as things, uh, kind of spin, uh, out of control. I, I'm mezzo mezzo on this one. Like as, as oh, a, Oh, are you? I am. Okay. Look, I think as a, as a straight up like genre thriller, it's effective. Soderbergh knows what he's doing. Right. He, he shot it. He edited it. You know, he, he he's in his wheelhouse. He knows how to do all that stuff. Where I think it falls apart, and this is written by David Kep, who, uh, you know, has written some really good thrillers and some really dumb ones, um, is that it, it, as with Blacklight, it sets up a very flat conspiracy with very few layers to it. Uh, and it's a conspiracy that has more to do with uh, one person doing a bad thing versus like the corporation doing something nefarious, you know. So this isn't the parallax view, right? Um, and then also her mental health issues and the roots of them, which comes up somewhat in her discussions with her, or, or you know, of course, virtual online conversations with her therapist, um, get resolved fairly neatly at the end in a way that I found kind of unsatisfying however Kravitz is really good in this the movie moves along at a brisk clip and there's some really tense kind of nail-biter moments uh there's a there's a cool scene involving a a police protest um (laughs) yes that is unlike anything I've seen in a thriller and it feels super of the now yeah and and like I think Soderbergh is is got there first I think we're going to be seeing scenes like this in in films over the next few years so there's, you know, it's absolutely worth seeing, you know, this isn't like the laundromat where it's like not even the fact that Soderbergh made this movie makes it worth watching. Right. Um, but it's, it's just kind of okay for me. Um, I like it more than you. I know. I think it's economical. Okay. And sort of, you know, tightly packed. Sure. It's with a, what it needs to have. It's a brisk 89 minutes. As a film set during COVID, uh, I understand it's, you know, themes of isolation Mm -hmm. and paranoia and, you know, the stress of leaving your home. Yes. Magnified in a person who already 
you know, has an anxiety issue and doesn't want to leave home. Um, For reasons having nothing to do with the pandemic. Exactly. Um, It's not the kind of cantankerous COVID movie that, say, Bad Luck Banging is, Mm -hmm. which is another film that, you know, is set during this specific moment. Right. It's also not the kind of COVID movie that just has people talking to each other on Zoom. (laughs) Thankfully, yes. Um, So I appreciated that. Uh, That he is his own cinematographer all the time. I think that we, as a society, (laughs) take that for granted, and we should not. (laughs) Because he manages every time, and specifically for me here, to deliver themes with the camera. Oh, sure. Um, To deliver mood and characterization and, you know, everything else he wants to give you by the placement of bodies and things in the frame and how he, uh, how he lights them and how he moves behind them or in front of them or alongside them. Uh, the, the camera there is so much good work going on. Absolutely. The, the camera and the cutting are telling a whole story about, uh, the, the, the protagonist's state of mind when she is at home and when she is outside. Yeah. Which is very effective. Um, as I said earlier, films that play fast and loose with mental health for the sake of the narrative, I find them to be mostly irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say this improves on that somewhat. Okay. Um, there's a weird glib exchange between Zoe Kravitz and her online therapist where the online therapist says something to her that I thought, uh, no therapist talks to anyone like that. <laughs> no therapist talks to anyone like that. Essentially telling Zoe Kravitz, why don't you just get over it? Like, <laughs> I was like, you're bad at your job. I didn't know I was calling Dr. Tough Love. Does the movie know that the therapist is bad at her job? That was the thing that oh, I didn't good question. get any, yeah. I didn't get, any didn't get any clarity on that. Um, and it made me feel like, is the movie just telling her to get over it? Is it about to show us her getting over it? Uh for necessity's sake. Yeah. So that, not my favorite thing. Um, also, um, women in peril films. Uh, written and directed by men. Mm. I think they can often turn callous very quickly. Um, remember when we watched... Uh, 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 oh man, what's the name of that Doris Day movie that we watched oh, uh, in 2020 is it, it came out on Blu-ray? Is, uh, uh, um, Midnight Lace. Yes. So Doris Day is in the 60s in London and she thinks she's being stalked. Yes. And everyone around her is like, you're being crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know your own mind, lady. Like, <laughs> and, and the film very happily allows you to think that she might be. Yeah. Um, Spoiler, she's not. Yeah, yeah. Tur- no, yeah, turns out Doris Day knows her own mind, yes. damn it. Um, so often, films put that woman in the position of having to not only extricate herself from the terror, mm-hmm. but convince literally everyone <laughs> around her right. that 
that she's not that she's not delusional delusional right um and in the process they wind up allowing all sorts of violence to befall that character um but even though there is a character who is on the other end of that crime who's being victimized um when it comes to Zoe Kravitz, what he is doing with her is giving her the space to be someone who fights back with her knowledge. Yes. Because she has a lot of it. Not only about her job, but about her surroundings. Yes. And how they are constructed and how she can use those surroundings and that ability to understand the construction of those surroundings. You get a Chekhov's backstory that pays off. Yes. Um <laughs> So she knows how the world around her works. She knows how her job works. And she knows her own mind. Yes. And so so he, he gives her the space to do that. Zoe Kravitz also in her performance, I think, modulates all of this. Um, you know, at times she is very small and contained when she's feeling the anxiety of her situation. Other times she can be physical and get where she needs to go and be strong about it. Yes. Uh She's not a quivering victim. She keeps her wits. Yes. I appreciated that. Um, and I'm much more on the page of this film okay. than you were. Uh, I think it's that thing where I'm seeing people lose their minds about it. And I'm like, like how great it is. I'm like, it's let's, okay. let's dial that down a little. But yeah, I, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying that it's irredeemable or that it's not worth watching. I just think it's okay i like it all right marry me alonzo oh in a heartbeat again and again and again (laughs) uh yeah this is the other big rom-com uh streaming this weekend it is in theaters but it's also on peacock before we talk about it yes i'm getting a feeling not because i've been out to read anybody's review Mm mm-hmm but there's some Twitter chatter going on. Sure. Does everyone hate this movie except us? You either love it or you hate it. Okay. Because <laughs> we Cause love it. I have found a lot of people <laughs> who are like, OMG, this is the best rom-com in ages. Yeah. And then other people are like, ugh, this is movie is so beneath Jennifer Lopez. This is the conversation Christy and I had yesterday. She did not oh, okay. care for this movie much at all. I haven't watched that video. But no. yeah, so this is a divisive one, shockingly enough. You are either completely on board by this movie and swept up in its unique charms uh, and its very kind of old-fashioned, you know, uh, pleasures, or you think it's garbage. Like, those are the choices. I will describe. Yes. So Jennifer Lopez plays Jennifer Lopez. Essentially, Yes. The name of the character is Kat Valdez. Yes. Uh, she is a global pop superstar. And has, she... Has been married several times. She's been married several times. She has had a Jennifer Lopez existence. Yes. And she uh, is now currently involved with uh, a singer named Bastian, who is played by Maluma. Yes. And when you see them together, you think, well, of course you're together. <laughs> Impossibly gorgeous people. Yes. Are meant to be together because of the universe or something, I guess. Um, and they have a plan. They have a single, a duet called Marry Me that is uh, like number one on the charts and everyone loves the song. And they are going to get married on stage 
in a streaming link that like 20 million people are going to watch. Yeah, it's the culmination of her tour on stage at Madison Square Garden. On the eve of that, or rather on the day of that uh, concert, um, it is discovered that uh, Maluma... During that concert. <laughs> Maluma is cheating on uh, her with her assistant, and so... Uh, the wedding is called off right then and there, but she looks down in the audience at math teacher, middle school math teacher Owen Wilson and his little middle school daughter. He's a single dad and their good friend played by Sarah Silverman, who plays the school's guidance counselor. Uh, Sarah Silverman's character is a lesbian. Therefore she has a sign that she is holding that says, marry me. <laughs> um, and she, for some reason, and I can't remember. She now, like goes to the bathroom or something yeah, and gives it to Owen Wilson. Hands the sign to, to Owen Wilson, who's just standing there holding the sign. And Jennifer Lopez is like, "Well, I'm not marrying Bastian. How about you? Come up on stage, marry me." <laughs> they get married. It's a publicity stunt. She doesn't want to be, you know, seen to be foolish Flighty. or weak or anything. Um, so, so after the concert's over, she says, "All right." <laughs> Let's get to know each other. I don't want to be humiliated in public. Because that was humiliating enough. Yeah. And and you were game enough to go along with that stunt. We don't have to go our separate ways. Let's get to know each other. And at the end of six months, like she'll make a big donation to the school. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a plan. It's a business arrangement. Yeah. But it's also a thing where they're thinking, eh, you know, why not? Yeah. And she's and she's saving face. So, she uh, uh, starts learning about what it's like to live a normal life. Absolutely unrealistically, <laughs> <laughs> he starts learning what it's like to be constantly hounded by the press. Absolutely unrealistically, because yeah, it'd be much worse. It would be way worse than what they depict. It's, um, like, it's like the people who watched this movie saw the Amy Winehouse documentary. They're like, well, "We're not doing that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the um, the the level of scrutiny that Jennifer Lopez, the real person, faces on a daily basis, and the level of scrutiny that a uh, middle school math teacher would face on a daily basis both of them are uh, simultaneously over and undersold to yes. <laughs> uh, to the, In the, the, movie. the viewing audience. And yet, Jennifer Lopez, because honestly, the Owen Wilson character could be played by anyone. Pretty much. Luke Wilson. <laughs> a broomstick with a smile. Yeah, it, it, it could have been anybody. Jennifer Lopez carries this film, even when she's not on screen, even though she is mostly on screen most of the time. When she's not, she's being discussed. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) And I think that we don't give Jennifer Lopez, the actor, singer, dancer, performer, entertainer, the respect and credit that she is due. She has been 
doing this since the early 90s. Yes. When she was a fly girl in, on, on In Living Color and you did not know her name. Right. When she was dancing in Janet Jackson videos and you did not know her name. Um, when she came along and was in uh, uh, My Family. When she was in uh, uh, then, of course, Selena. And it felt like she came out of nowhere. This fully formed, like, powerhouse of a performer. Right. And then you're like, oh, no, she actually does sing, too, and she's got pop hits now. And I think that when that happens, when when, you're, uh, uh, when your public persona becomes a site of blinding glamour, when it seems like the whole world just unfurls for you and and you get to like glide through it on a cloud with no one really having a good idea of what it takes to be what you have built for yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you are a woman, and if you are a woman of color, mm-hmm. it's more easily uh, dismissed by the culture at large and... Then if you get involved in a series of high-profile romances mm-hmm. where there's lots of tabloid and scandal and drama and right. heartbreak and weird movies that you wind up making together with the person that you're with. <laughs> I forgot about um, that one. <laughs> it can be a weird burden that you then have to carry around after you have built this thing right. well, it's a distraction. for yourself. Yeah. So as we were watching the film... Uh, and they started talking about, I think, some award show in the movie. The Grammys. Were they talking about the Grammys? Yeah. We're watching this on the couch. I go to my phone. She said, she has a line in the film, I've never been nominated for anything. Do you know... Yes. How many times the Jennifer Lopez mm-hmm. has been nominated for a Grammy? I do not... Two. Oh, come on. Two. Two times. Do you know how many albums she has sold globally? A, a gajillion. 70 million. Wow. Now, what does that mean? When the Grammys are so frequently about who sold the most. Sure, yeah. Why not her? Right? Why no... Uh, and as much as we care about the Oscars, we don't. <laughs> Why not her nominated for Hustlers? Right. No, that was the thing. People what about. is the problem? And I think the problem is that when you are a person that seems bigger than life, mm-hmm. when, as I said, the blinding glamour of your existence can make people forget how good you are at doing your job. Well, yeah, I think there are people who... You know the, the 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 they let you know how much blood, sweat, and tears go into their art, right? And then there are people for whom it just looks effortless, and because of I think part of the glamour yeah. you talk about, it just seems like this just happens. Even though obviously she is putting in the hours and the rehearsal time and the writing the and the, everything everything that she's doing to create this you know empire that she has in in various media. If she held a guitar or played a piano, sure, 
I am reminded of that moment in the Lady Gaga, A Star is Born, Mm -hmm. where she's a serious singer-songwriter and then gets gets famous with dance pop. Right. And not only do all the other characters in the film treat her like a sellout for this, Mm -hmm. but somehow their, their respect for her is diminished. Right. Because pop is... Obviously, we all know. Disposable. Inherently disposable and shallow. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the thorn, right? So if she were making Lilith Fair music, who knows what the world would be like. Right. Um, now, that is just a digression to tell you that glamorous Jennifer Lopez is exactly what you get here and is exactly what this film needs and it's exactly what the film... Uh, 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 and you deserve because she's perfect at this. She sings no fewer than four or five, six songs yeah. in the film, complete with like costumes and choreography and, and, and everything. Stuff that I think even actual Jennifer Lopez would not do in concert. There's an entire number where the, the, the where all the background dancers have these like like you know, scan- sexy, sexy scantily nun, clad nun late, outfits, latex nun outfits on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you if you go to Spirit Halloween and get the sexy the right. sexy vinyl nun costume, <laughs> that's what they're wearing. Um, but she is giving you all of that, all of that Las Vegas, you know, pizzazz that you expect from her. Yeah. But she's also so winning and so warm and so appealing. You you are rooting for her through this entire bland and cliche-ridden narrative. <laughs> it, look, which it, is what it is. It, it is. This is a movie that is formulaic, but it reminds you that you like the formula. Yeah. That the, there's a reason the formula got popular and successful because it can be very appealing. And this movie is very appealing even though you have to kind of watch it like you were watching a 1938, you know, screwball comedy or something and not start asking any questions about the reality of this situation. You just have to sort of go with it as the soap bubble that it is. She is fully... Uh, in control here. She carries every moment with uh, 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 a kind of movie star ease that can only be uh, perfected through lots of hard work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you just want, you you root for her to get everything that she wants. Um, I also think back to films that she wasn't the executive producer of it. She wasn't in full control of it. <laughs> right. I'm thinking of films like What to Expect When You're Expecting. Oof. A very bad movie. The Wedding Planner. Specifically What to Expect When You're Expecting. Okay. Where. Oh, that's true. She <laughs> delivers the most heartfelt, moving moments in a film that earns none of it. Yeah. I, it, as I watched it, I remember watching it at the press screening thinking, what a bad movie this is. What a terrible, awful film this is. And then watching her be in the movie she was hoping it was going to be. Yes. And after on our way home from it, I said, wasn't Jennifer Lopez great in that terrible film? (laughs) 
And, and she didn't even have a lot to do. No, no, no. I mean, no. It, it's a very scattershot movie, but she yeah. makes she grabs onto those scenes and makes them work. Look, there have been a lot of not great Jennifer Lopez film performances over the years. Let's not oversell that. But I think that she absolutely knows what she's doing here. And, you know, playing, quote unquote, yourself can be really difficult. I think people, you know, underestimate that sort of thing. But she is so enormously appealing in the way that the reason that movie stars exist is to be appealing on this level. And she's doing it. And the 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 binding nature of celebrity is something that visits her character in this film Mm -hmm. so that. In the end, when she is wearing the, what can only be described as, climactic dress. (laughs) It's like a superhero costume (laughs) that is meant to be, like, stunning. Yes. Funny, because of the way she's moving in it. She's, like, running in these, like, super tall heels in this super tight dress. And she's doing it very delicately, but at the same time, she has to go fast. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, 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 don't fall down. Don't fall down. <laughs> get to the place and get the guy and do the thing. <laughs> I love this movie. I, I was and delighted. I don't care what you think. <laughs> I, whoever whoever wants to come at me about it I no, love I, I love this movie as, as I said to somebody online like anything that this movie anybody anything this movie anything that people say about this movie against it is, is true probably true <laughs> doesn't matter that's right I finally got around to watching Spencer ah yes that's a chilly bit of business isn't it it is. I yeah. mean, well, it's a drafty castle and it's December. <laughs> they make so much out of how cold it is all the time. Mm. And yet, the opening scene is Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana driving north, uh, essentially to Scotland, yeah. in a top-down convertible on December 24th. What? Well, she's wearing a wool Chanel suit. Oh, she's barely wearing anything. <laughs> she's got a jacket on, but not an overcoat. No, true. No gloves, no, no hat, no. hair's blown around. And you're like, honey, <laughs> what? Who decided that this was the opening scene of this film? Um, so this is the story of uh, Princess Diana on the last Christmas that she would spend with the royal family, with her former husband, uh, Prince Charles. It's December 24th, 25th, and 26th. This takes place over the course of 72 hours. It's a Christmas movie. And it is the least Christmassy Christmas movie that ever Christmas movied. (laughs) There is nothing Christmassy feeling about this film. It is a fragile, brittle, bitter study of... A woman going through a hideous moment in her life. Yes. Well, but that can be a Christmas movie. You just watched The Lion in Winter. You're right, I did. In any case. Yes. She spends her days sort of drifting through this gigantic structure with a royal family that 
treats her like an inconvenience mm. or ignores her or is openly hostile. Yeah, they treat her like an interloper, to say the least. Uh, but she's been a part of them for 10 years. Yes, she has and two is sons. at her breaking point. Yeah. So Pablo Lorraine is the filmmaker here, um, directed uh, Jackie, yeah. another film about a highly specific, highly, very high profile, uh, famous woman dealing with extreme pressure. Yeah. And Kristen Stewart's performance is unlike what I have seen her do before. Uh, Because it's one of those, I'm going to inhabit this famous person. Mm -hmm. And because I'm going to inhabit this famous person, I have to get down the voice and the mannerisms and the... The, the tilt of the head and all that stuff. And that's sort of the costume that you put on. Yeah. Um, there is what I, what I like about this performance is the way she, you know, vacillates back and forth between I'm going to be defiant. I'm going to be fragile. I'm going to freak out. Uh, I'm going to try to escape. Uh, and ultimately, I'm going to make my decision and then move forward. Uh, but it's a it's an unhappy journey watching her get from point A to point. Definitely. C, you I, know. I was actually thinking about it this week. You know what would be an interesting double feature with this? Yeah. The Swimmer. Mm-hmm. Because there is I this... I understand, yes. There is this sort of idealized home that is that is a goal for the characters, but that that's not, not there anymore. Right. Um, this, the castle that she's spending, where she's spending Christmas with the, with the Windsors, uh, is very close to her sort of childhood estate. Yes. And she keeps trying to like get there. Right. And over the course of it, you know, she is engaged in sort of fantasy sequences where she's, you know, either having nightmares or she's having daydreams and, about, you know, harming herself. Mm-hmm. Um, it is... She is visibly grappling with an eating disorder. Like yeah. They, 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 they don't shy away from that. So I would say, you know, as a study of this very famous person who went through very famous public strife, mm-hmm. um, it is as respectful as I think we could hope for. Yeah. Um, because so much, I feel like there's so much that's like exploitive about the way Diana is discussed in public. Yeah. I still haven't watched the musical. I'm not going to. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, I think if we lived in the UK, it would be an even more sort of difficult, intense, you know, experience watching this Mm -hmm. film. But that's the, that's the power of what she was, is that we don't even, we're like 10 steps removed from any understanding of that family. Sure. And she captivated the United States as well. True. Um, you know, people followed her. The tabloids here yes. wanted to know everything about her over there. Yes. I think the Meghan Markle interview kind of cast this film in an interesting light as well. Yes. What we know about the firm and all. And how they how they treat you when you are coming in from outside. Yeah. Um, 
And it makes you feel good that Meghan Markle got out got out with the help rather than the hindrance mm-hmm. of, her of, of the person she married. Yeah. Um, so I it's 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 not a film I like. Every scene sort of is there to remind you of the point. Fair enough. Everything that people say is about her. And, you know, the, the, the symbolism lands really heavily here. You know, one of the first things you see is a, a beautiful dead bird on the ground being run over by trucks. You know, um, There's a recurring reference to a book about Anne Boleyn. Yeah, it's... You're never at all. You're never confused about what the point of the movie is, <laughs> and I'm irritated by that quite often. Um, as with Airdal, as with Airdal, yeah. I would say this is definitely worth seeing for her performance. But yes, that's where I was going next. I like her performance. I also really like Johnny Greenwood's score. I know he got the Oscar nod this year for Power of the Dog, and that's a good score too. But I, yeah. the 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 stuff that he's doing with some diegetic music in this film uh, it, during the big dinner scene, I thought was really good. <laughs> that moment. I don't, how do I not? I, I guess it's not a spoiler. Um, the 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 diegetic music becomes score in a very seamless way, but as it becomes score, you're thinking, I'm sorry. Is that string quartet playing this discordant, <laughs> this emotionally music? fraught music <laughs> like at a dinner? Like, what's happening? Um, and that's a really cool moment. Yeah. Um, as you realize that, no, 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 this is how she hears. This it. is what she's hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like her performance. I find Kristen Stewart to be, uh, you know, Worth following and looking at, Absolutely. no matter what she's doing, even in a movie that's not great. Uh, she's better than the film. That's fair. But uh, yeah, I, I think people should check it out. It's currently streaming on Hulu, if you missed it. Um, Turn on the captions, because nobody speaks above a whisper. That is that also, there's that also. <laughs> uh, there's no whispering in our final film. Venom, let there be carnage. <laughs> no, quite we've, to the contrary. We finally got a chance to see it. Um, they sent us a Blu-ray. It's been sitting on the stack. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, we never reviewed it. When it came out, it was only in theaters, and we weren't in theaters at that time. You didn't like the first Venom. I did not. I love that first Venom. And not just because it stars my movie boyfriend. Your non-trash movie boyfriend. Although he's making trash movies with these. I don't think this is a trash movie. Yeah, I, it depends on your definition of trash, <laughs> but you know what I mean. This is the funniest Marvel movie. This is the funniest Marvel film that I've seen. Yeah, that's... If we don't count Ragnarok, which is very funny. Ragnarok um, is funny. The first Guardians, I'd say. The first Guardian is pretty funny. Ragnarok is funny. But this is funny in a way that feels almost anti-Marvel. <laughs> and it sort of is and isn't Marvel in the way that like, the X-Men movies were. It's also queer to me oh, in a no, way. Oh, no, very. That <laughs> and intentionally so. <laughs> that the word closet is used. Yeah. Um, 
And if you can be in a relationship with your monster self, both, you know, emotionally and romantically, that is kind of what this is about. Yeah. Which makes it, again, not a trash movie. Makes it an extremely weird movie. But in a say, but in a, but in the way that the first Venom was very weird, I, I in this case I mean trash in terms of just being like outrageous genre. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, so Venom has a problem. Uh, what is that problem? Bad people are doing something. Oh well, they, they, <laughs> Venom. Venom. Wants, I'm blind. I've already forgotten. Venom wants to eat the heads of of, of villains, and, and that's he, yes, yes, yes. He yes, wants yes. What, what's the, what's the hero name he wants to use. The ultimate destroyer, or something crazy like that. The, something really hammy. The lethal destroyer. The lethal destroyer. The, the lethal protector. The lethal protector. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. And Eddie Sorry. Brock is like, no, no, we're not doing that. And so the only way to feed Venom what he needs that he can't get from eating bad people's brains is chickens and chocolate. Right. So they're constantly live, live chickens. Live chickens yeah. and chocolate. So they're constantly chasing down those two things. No live chickens are uh, harmed in this film. No. no. Um, so uh, Eddie, appar- uh, hmm? apparently in Jackass, things are not uh, you know, great. Peter would have you believe. I don't know what the story is there. Um, well, I read about what goes on, and it doesn't seem good. Okay. I mean, we haven't seen the film, we have not. and 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 Shotty wrote us a letter about it. And I was like, oh, oh my, what? Why is no one talking about this? If that's in fact what happened, but when we see the movie, we'll be able to have that discussion sure. more. Fully. Um, anyway, Eddie, as a who is a reporter, lest we forget, uh, gets the and oppor- we do forget. We do <laughs> gets the opportunity to interview uh, an infamous serial killer on death row, played by Woody Harrelson. Uh, but unfortunately, Venom emerges just enough to enter into Woody Harrelson's bloodstream, and thus uh, we get carnage. Uh, and then, of course, Woody Harrelson's girlfriend, played by uh, Naomi Harris. Uh, has like some kind of mutant power where she can, she's she's like the X Men uh, character Banshee. She basically has a a whale that will you know destroy people. Yes. Uh, but of course the whale is the, the 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 high sonic you know noise is the is the the weakness of these alien symbiotes. So that's complicated. And this movie, if nothing else, it. Gets the job done fast. Quickly. It's like, what, 100 minutes or something? Oh, it's like 85 minutes. Yeah. Like, yeah. There, you know, so many superhero movies. How many How many, How many? many superhero so movies, long. DC, Marvel, whoever, would be 1,000% better? We have a three-hour Batman if were, coming if up. If they were shorter. <laughs> this one just, like, is in and out and gets it, gets yeah. the job done. You know, like, they get to the big climactic, you know, thing at the, the cathedral in San Francisco, and you're like, what? We're here already? Like, okay, great. Why not? <laughs> I love how Michelle Williams' character is just kind of over it yeah. the whole time. She's like, oh, yeah, that's that's my that's my boyfriend. And my ex. My <laughs> ex. And he's a alien monster now. Also, <laughs> yeah, like, can we? I've moved on. <laughs> um. This is all about Tom Hardy. Yes. Tom Hardy, above all else, is a weird person. Yes. And I am happy to report that his weirdness is manifesting itself on screen in 
far more entertaining and subtle ways than Johnny Depp ever managed to figure out how to do. No kidding. And so watching him sort of take projects and make them be showcases for his strangeness. And he has a story credit on this. Yeah. (laughs) It makes me pretty happy. Yeah. Because he could just be an award-winning actor who who plays, you know, very important important characters in nominated films blah 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 he's got that level of that in him yeah and he doesn't seem to care yeah I'm into it you know I'm into it until I'm not like I'm still remembering <laughs> like that Capone movie well that was a bad film that was a bad film but you couldn't stop watching him. Sure, but you can tell that he signed on to it because like, oh wait, I can play a gangster, but I'm basically incontinent the whole movie. Yeah. Sign me up. It's like, <laughs> there's a point at which the weirdness overwhelms everything else. You know, that, sure. Whatever that, okay, F, that, fine. that FX show that he did, that by the end of it, I was like, I, I almost never want to see Tom Hardy again after this thing. It's, I was into that too. You know, but yeah, Ideally, yes. At, his, at its best, I do like the weirdness of him. And this is good weirdness from Tom Hardy. This is a lot of fun. It is, it, crazily enough. even It is even, as fun as watching him dive into a tank of lobsters in the first film. Which was the one moment for me that worked. <laughs> oh, you know who else was in the first film? Uh, remind me. Jenny Slate. You're right. <laughs> it all comes back. Uh, yeah, uh, there's even a, a little bit of redemption for Dan in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing him do the Venom voice is also yes, you know, nobody likes you, Dan. And the and the just the dial the the Venom dialogue is wonderful. Yeah, I laughed and laughed and laughed. I, it's I, the funniest. Thing I've seen from Marvel in a while. I really enjoyed it, and I was not expecting to because yeah, the first one I think is is a hot mess. But this is a this is a this is a, a, a different kind of a hot different mess. kind of hot mess in the good way. All right. Thank you, uh, friends, listeners, for listening to us talk about nine films. Yes. I want to do one quick something that we try do never do. to do. Yeah. <laughs> I have one quick streaming recommendation. Uh, speaking of Jenny Slate, uh, yes. Obvious Child uh, from 2014 uh. is uh, currently available on uh, Canopy and Hoopla, among other places. Both of those uh, can be accessed, depending on where you live, uh, for free with a library card. And I know a lot of areas that don't, their libraries don't subscribe to Canopy, you can get into Hoopla. So either way, you can check it out there. Uh, and she's great in them. But yeah, thank you for, uh, for for letting us do this. We will be back in a few weeks. And it's uh, February 12th. Yeah. We'll be back. The book is due the 25th. Yeah. We'll be back after that. Yeah. Yeah. So in the meantime, uh, thanks for listening. Check out my other podcasts, Maximum Film, Breakfast All Day, Deck the Hallmark. Um, you know, check out our, our, our good friends on the internet who I've mentioned in the past and we'll mention again in the future when, you know, we're less stressed. And uh, please uh, subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. We'll read it on the air. Uh, You can also leave us positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including uh, Stitcher Radio, thelounge.com, CastBox, Podbean, 
um, Google Play, uh, Amazon Music. Um, you can follow us on the social media at Linoleum Cast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme music. Get his new album, Six Tape, at blueblu.bandcamp.com. And drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com. We are going to do an all letters episode uh, after we come back. Yep. So uh, if you have been... That'll be three hours long. <laughs> exactly. If you've been meaning to write us and have it, <laughs> now would be a great time to do it. Anyway, thanks for listening. Or you could wait until after we get that episode done. <laughs> Either way. There's a lot of letters. It's on you. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next time. Goodbye. <laughs>